You're listening to the NYC Media Lab podcast. This episode features a panel discussion that was hosted on April 23, 2018 at Betaworks. It features Betaworks CEO John Borthwick as he discusses how regulation could fix Facebook with author Andrew Keene, Wired journalist Jesse Hempel, and early Facebook investor Roger McNamee. Uh, I'm excited tonight to, uh, to kick off the studio with this discussion on fixing Facebook. And so I'm going to hand over to Andrew, who's going to moderate and who's going to introduce everybody but me, not me. Andrew? Thank you. It's nice to be here. My name is Andrew Keane. I'm an author of a new book called How to Fix the Future, which is on sale back with signing copies at the end. So I think some of you will be interested in the book. It's actually very relevant to be here because um, the narrative in the, the book begins actually not specifically in this space, but in a similar sort of space here. And it's a book about reinvention and how we solve so many of the problems, some of the problems we're going to talk about today in the digital age, uh, particularly obviously the ones of data and privacy and these increasingly dominant and unaccountable Silicon Valley companies. So we have a great uh, panel of people. Um, I'm going to sit down in a second. I think. Uh, uh, I'm not going to introduce them in too much detail, but Roger McNamee is um, a legendary figure in Silicon Valley. He's uh, very much, he was very much involved with the foundation, the beginnings of Facebook, lots of other investments, and now he's become one of the most persistent and uh, critics of, of what's happening. Uh, Jesse Hempel, right? Uh, Jesse Hempel uh, is a journalist, she's really worked. Uh, focused very much on Facebook, on its story, so she's going to fill in the details of what's happening and what this means in the broader uh, technological picture. And John, who you all know, is the uh, founder and the CEO of Betaworks, so he's someone who is, as an investor, as someone who, um, someone who needs to find innovation, profits from innovation, I think his voice is particularly important here. I think he might be slightly less critical of Facebook than Roger, but certainly he's not shy to articulate the problems he thinks with the company and uh, what we need to fix it. So this is going to be a conversation about how we fix not just Facebook, but the bigger issue of social networks, of privacy, of data, and it seems the disappearance of truth and its impact on democracy. I thought we might begin with Jesse, who can... Very briefly, Jesse, you might um, give us a narrative, three or four minutes, First what, of, all, of what's happening. I'd like to say the disappearance of truth and its impact on, on democracy. We only have an hour, so I just have <laughs> that expectation. Um, well, look, when we're talking about fixing Facebook, um, this is actually a, a new way that the mainstream world has talked about Facebook. Until very recently, there was one narrative about Facebook. There's kid that had sort of become the iconic, successful millennial. This is what success looked like as a millennial. You go to college, you start a company in your dorm room, you grow up really, really big, and it'll be Facebook, and you'll be rich and amazing. Um, and then that kid grew up and became 30, what, three? 33, and his company grew up and uh, now has 2.2 billion users who visit it every month. Is that right? I look at you like you're still the expert on Facebook. It's been a few years. I, I acknowledge that. 
Um, and really this conversation began, the conversation we're going to have tonight should be framed by events that happened about a month and a half ago, um, related to Cambridge Analytica. And the whistleblower who came forward and talked about um, a data breach at Cambridge Analytica. And here's the thing about that story, it wasn't you. Investigative reporters had been reporting that that had happened for a year and a half ago. But what happened this year is that we learned that Facebook actually knew that developers had access to this data, had taken this data, had used it improperly, and they chose to do nothing. And when it came up and they were asked to address this, they still chose to do nothing. They spent five days saying nothing about this, hoping that it would blow over. And of course it didn't didn't blow over at all. It became a bigger and bigger quandary as Facebook completely failed to own up to the significance and the gravity of the situation. And it started the national conversation that I think we're even having at my dinner table in, among my parents in Mississippi right now. Um, what does it mean to own my data? Who gets to own my data? What does it mean to be a good steward of my data? Who can I trust with my data? Um, and the last thing I'll say about this, because we should probably jump into the conversation, is that Mark Zuckerberg has become the face of this. Facebook has become the face of this. But what we're talking about right now when we're talking about big data is, is a larger problem. And when I'm trying to understand it, um, I often think about it as a bit akin to climate change. Um, because climate change is one of those huge, intractable problems that keeps me awake at night and makes me worry for my children's future. But if you ask me, I wouldn't really know whether it was a better idea to recycle or to use paper plates or cups or what, I wouldn't know the first thing about how I individually could make an impact to make the world better or to alleviate climate change. And I think that right now, that's the situation that most people find themselves in when it comes to big data. Like, what does it mean to protect yourself? Should you go take your Facebook profile down? So, Roger, you've been in this from the beginning. Uh, you were, we were talking earlier backstage, you acknowledged that you, you really drank the Kool-Aid in the first place. I remain a huge fan of Facebook, the product, and I love greeting people on their birthday. <laughs> I love sharing photographs. I have a rock and roll band that, you know, lives with its fans on Facebook. And imagine waking up in one day at the end of January of 2016 and discovering that you are Jimmy Stewart in an Alfred Hitchcock movie. And something has happened, and you pull on the thread. Well, something happened was that I saw memes, ostensibly from groups associated with the Bernie Sanders campaign, that were spreading virally because people were spending money on things that no campaign would have spent money on. And that started an investigation that led to me writing up, sending a memo to Mark and Cheryl nine days before the election, saying I thought there was a systemic problem with the business model and the algorithms that was allowing bad actors across a really wide range of areas to harm innocent people. And I said, we're in a trust business. We need to get to the bottom of this. And I spent three months privately negotiating with them to just get them to do an investigation internally. Because I said, look, there's an asymmetry. If I'm wrong, it costs you nothing to do the investigation. If I'm right and you don't do it, you're going to put the whole brand at risk. Here we are. Here, five months later, and that's where we are. The whole thing is, is, is what I can tell you is when we began, I thought all of this was, and it was a set of innocent mistakes, you know, the hubris of youthful 
entrepreneurs. And the sad thing is that there isn't one thing that happened here that wasn't the result of a conscious decision. I like the Jim Stewart illusion. I actually wrote a book called Digital Vertigo and a similar theme. Um, who, who is Jim Stewart in all this? Are we all Jim Stewart? Are you Jim Stewart? Well, the only reason we, Tristan and I refer to ourselves as Jimmy Stewart in this thing is when we began. You know, Jimmy Stewart, the first realist, no idea what's going on, right? The bad guys know what's going on. He is you mean in Vertigo? No, I was actually thinking, you know, of, of different films, but it doesn't matter. The, the, the Hitchcock ones all have the same basic frame, which is beginning has no idea what's going on, he just makes it worse. In the second one, he still doesn't know what's going on, but he accidentally does something that puts him into the game. In the third reel, he's, he catches up, and in the fourth reel, you he has victory. And we're now somewhere in the third reel, right? So, John, is, is that right? Are we all innocents in this? We've all been swept into an evil plot? I, I, don't, I don't think we're quite so innocent. So, I want to touch on something Jesse said and something Roger said. So, Jesse referred to it as a data breach. Um, I, I think it's, I was kind of fascinated by how the press sort of, you know, Thronged onto this as data breach or as a even as a leak. Something you mean the Cambridge Analytica? The Cambridge Analytica. That word breach, it's a touchy word. Yeah, this was a data policy. This yeah. was this explicit policy to let app developers like Arsa Betaworks and other app developers to have access to all of your graph data. It is true that Facebook has never sold its data. It is also true that they have given the data to every single person who had asked between 2010. So that's the business model of this. So that was the, well, and there was something which I read, which I thought was um, a post-Cambridge analytical, which I thought was interesting, which talked about the history of how Zuckerberg you know, had, a, um, had a, a desire, belief, and a fantasy that he could actually build a, uh, a platform. And it was sort of, you know, that Facebook would be more, more like the web as a platform, and that he would make money off third-party app developers. And yet, they then pivoted over time into the ad model, but it's like they didn't shut down the other piece. Well, they didn't, they, they didn't, they didn't bother to actually clean up after themselves. And so, look, I mean, I, I would, to make it very personal, I would encourage all of you to download your Facebook data, right? I am not a Facebook user. I've never liked Facebook. Um, as a product, I was, you know, I was preferred for a whole bunch of reasons, Twitter and other social products out there. So not a Facebook user. Yet I signed up for Facebook the month after it became open um, because I'm in the technology business and I love trying new technology. So I went down with my data. I had 260 apps um, that had lost into my data. So that meant 260 apps in all of my data. Uh, there was 2,500 of my friends, all of their phone numbers. Most of them had multiple phone numbers. Um, and that had been shared with all those apps. In addition, Facebook told me there were 680 advertisers that they had shared all my data with, including um, Obama's campaign, including Taylor Swift, um, and <laughs> a lot of people who had no idea why they would want my friends' phone numbers, but they had all that data. And then when I looked at the apps who had all the data, one thing that struck me was, as a uh, on the developer side, is about 40% of those apps were actually default companies. They were actually companies that gone bankrupt. And so I could, I know that I could actually go out and I could, if I'm an affairs actor in this, I could have bought those tokens and gotten access to it. As Roger said, there were a few apps out there you could have very easily gotten access to the two million Facebook fight graph um, if you had wanted to. Okay. So can I just want to bring Jesse back in? 
Yeah, you, you, you sort of introduced a, a, a cultural critique, I think, in some ways, or historical cultural critique. Is this the inevitable end product of the cult of transparency and openness that infected, or some might, people might say infected, or infected or affected Silicon Valley, and particularly guys like Zuckerberg? Um, I, you know, this is, this is a, I don't want to call it the end product, and I don't want to say anything is definitive of that, because it suggests that we didn't have a hand in creating it. We products are a reflection of the people that create them. Um, John, you bring up such a good point, and, and a question that I'm often left with is, well, so you're right, so I want to understand exactly so what. And I say that because Amex probably knows whether I'm going to get a divorce. I don't know whether I'm going to get a divorce. I don't think I am. But Amex probably knows. So there, there are a lot of companies apart from Facebook that have more information on me than I understand and that are sophisticated enough to use it in ways that I don't understand as a consumer. Why is, it, why is this different? I, I mean, I think first and foremost because Facebook's proved to be an awful custodian of that data. Right. This. I mean, the, the the fact that they didn't clean up after themselves. The fact that they, you know, the five days that they wouldn't say anything. The fact that after the election, you know, it's a crazy idea that this could have uh, happened. I think that there's, you know, we've seen time and time again this company has not proved to be a, a custodian of your data. And I would want, I I want, you know, more ownership of that data. As Roger. Um, are they an anomaly, Facebook and Silicon Valley? I think the only reason they're an anomaly is because the product is the first that essentially was able to take human emotion and profit from that on a daily basis. You know, there were lots of things like games that could get at your emotions for short periods of time. Facebook was the first thing that turned a, an emotional graph into a business. And so in that sense, they have the ability to do far more damage than anyone else. But no, I mean, Google collects enormous amounts of data. You know, they use some of it better and some of it just as badly. You know, I look at YouTube and I think YouTube is a crisis, uh, you know, possibly an unfixable crisis for them. And uh, yet, obviously, AdWords is a much more respectful product and that's the core of their business. But, you know, if you look at whether it's Instagram or Snapchat, I mean, the basic philosophy of, you know, what's yours is mine, what's mine is mine, what's ours is mine, I think is quite pervasive in Silicon Valley. And I think the thing that's incredibly pervasive is after 2002, you know, once we got to an era of surplus of basic engineering inputs, so processing power, storage, memory, and bandwidth, you no longer needed experience to start a company. So suddenly the average age of an entrepreneur went from 37 to 22, and you have a whole generation of companies that have never read a novel, never read any history, never read any philosophy, and as a consequence, have no frame of reference to judge whether the actions that they're taking might have, you know, In fact, we, repercussions. we express bias for this. I mean, you're, you're in the VC business, you you got you were more likely to get funding if you were less than twenty five. Plus, you knew you. Amen. I'm just saying, but there's, that, that's where we are. And the question I was asked was, was this pervasive? And I think the answer is yes. Well, what difference would it make if you'd read a novel? <laughs> well, I'm saying that you might sit there and imagine that the 
the notion that technology is value neutral is an inherently bullshit statement. Why does reading a novel help you figure that out? Because it teaches you about, you know, novels are one of the ways you learn empathy because you experience other people's emotions. John, when you meet uh, be, uh, an entrepreneur startup kid for the first time, do you ask them if they've read any novel? <laughs> so I do. <laughs> for 45 years. But you're getting at these stereotypes, right? Like, the, the ballet that Roger helped Stewart in the early aughts was a ballet that said, we're going to be unlike anyone else. We are going to value youth. We are going to value naivete because you can go in and you can solve problems differently. And we want people to work through it fast. And it, it is interesting to me that in 2018, I'm seeing a, like a wild like swing to overcorrect. And we want you to be old now. We want you to write so much. We want you to slow way down. And the danger in this moment that I see, and which probably leads us to the question more square, squarely of regulation, is like, how do we have our cake and eat it too? Yeah, maybe I should become an entrepreneur. <laughs> I mean, I've read a lot of books. And I think there's another piece to this, which is, uh, you know, the, um, the technology that started off as being a PC for every desktop or a phone for every pocket is now exploding to every quarter of our lives and every piece of our lives and underpinning every piece of our lives. And I think that, you know, I've, I've met and, and talked to entrepreneurs who have, you know, candidly said that they had no idea, they thought that their product was basically a toy and that they had no idea the social impact that it would have. And I think that that has been Awareness. The reason why now is so important is that this technology is now invading and pervasive in every piece of our lives. And then you tie on top of that what's going on with machine learning, and because you see a very, I, I think you see a future that is not the future that I want to live in, that I think makes us, uh, makes me sort of open eyes and say we need to do something different. Jesse's point a moment ago about the cult of youth from the early aughts was not because we thought that was going to produce a generation of companies that changed civilization and politics forever. The assumption was that the things were going to have normal levels of impact on society. There was not an appreciation that once you got unbounded on processing power, storage, memory, and bandwidth, you are going to be able to produce things at global scale in a decade that transformed lives. You know, I mean, it's basically tech went from being a really interesting piece of the economy to Godzilla in Tokyo. So every time it turns around, it knocks a building down with its tail and it doesn't even know it's done. It. And I mean, that's a big part of what's going on here is just this unconsciousness of the ripple effects of what you do because you have this laser light focus on the KPIs or whatever you call it, the, the, the metrics you're pursuing. Let's do some research. How many of you, and, and this is a fairly biased panel for better or worse, and there's very few people, I almost feel like I should be defending Facebook, um, and I'm not Facebook friendly. Uh, how many of you are sympathetic to this you know, deeply critical position on Facebook? How many of you, for example, still have Facebook accounts? And how many of you are considering closing them? Uh, how many of you have closed your Facebook accounts over the last couple of months? And how many of you are quite happy with Facebook and not bothered by any of this crime? <laughs> You're brave enough to put your hands up. We're going to photograph you. 
Facebook knows who you are. Facebook, so Facebook's everywhere. Okay, so we acknowledge it's a big problem. So this is a panel about how to fix it, particularly regulation. So, John, you were involved in the Microsoft antitrust case. You know more than anyone else how annoying these antitrust cases are, a waste of time, bureaucracy, law courts. Surely regulation is not a friend of innovation, particularly in this area. Um, so, I did work about 15 years ago on the Microsoft Antitrust trial. I was an expert witness in the trial, and after it, I became a um, firm believer that it was, like you said, that regulation was not the opposite, because the marketplace took, took care of a lot of the transition that we went through, sort of in the post-Windows, post-desktop world, as we moved to the internet and to mobile. Um, that said, is that I think that now we're um, we're back at the table with uh, a discussion about regulation. I think in the last six weeks, everything's changed again. Um, I think that um, we have uh, we have a regulatory framework in Europe that um, uh, I think is uh, going to become the regulatory framework. Uh, for uh, the US and Briefly, uh, not everyone here will be familiar with that framework. Very briefly describe the, the European framework. I was going to ask you to do that. So, um, I'm the moderator, you're the expert. Yeah. I think that the so GD, GDPR is uh, May 25th, I think, yeah, because it's enacted in Europe. And this is it's a basic set of principles that you can you know take a look at them on the Wikipedia page that are, I, at the core of them, is ownership of your data and the right to be forgotten. And I think that those are two very important principles that the Europeans have sort of codified. Now, that said, is that um, I think in the short term, Andrew, the regulation in GDPR is gonna actually hand uh, the incumbents, you know, the Facebooks and the Googles a huge win, right? So one of the byproducts of uh, Cambridge Analytica, what's happened in the last six weeks is Facebook has advocated a lot of APIs, um, uh, you know, whether it's in their messenger box or whether it's in Instagram or elsewhere. And coupled with that is that a lot of the data is being locked down within Facebook. And so Facebook is doing that um, uh, you know, because of um, because public opinion and Washington has encouraged it, but it also clearly benefits Facebook. No, they're doing it for a lot of reasons. Right. So Jesse, talk a little bit about the regulatory environment. Do you think, to two quick questions, so you have an overview here. Firstly, is it likely that Facebook and these other big data companies are going to get regulated? And secondly... Have you been to Washington? I was there like this week. But, I mean, I, yeah, but, you know, what do you do in Washington? When you say, have you been to Washington, what do you mean? I, I, I mean, I'm not confident that in this administration we're likely to get much done at all. Mm. Um, and I didn't catch your second question, I just jumped right in on the first Yeah, time. well, so you're saying that Washington is screwed, but uh, there's nothing's going to happen, right? Um, I don't have a lot of confidence that anything is going to happen right away. I think we also have the challenge of helping um, our regulators and our, beyond that, our elected officials to understand what kind of business Facebook is. And in order to do that, we need to understand what kind of business Facebook is. And that is hard. So Roger, you've spent a lot of time in DC recently. I, I do. So can I, I want to push back and 
your framing. So I do not think that antitrust is the same as regulation. So antitrust historically is the most pro-growth thing you can do. Monopolies are horrible for innovation. Monopolies are horrible for economic growth. They're horrible for employment. So if you're pro-growth, the best thing to do is to follow something that looks like the AT&T consent decree from 1956, an antitrust measure under which AT&T agreed to box itself into regulated telephony, therefore not entering the computer industry, and in which it turned over all of its patents for free license, and that included the transistor. So it literally created Silicon Valley. So antitrust is historically the single most pro-growth thing you can do, period, bar none. There's nothing better on earth than breaking up a monopoly if you want growth. If you don't have competition, you do not have entrepreneurship. And right now, these guys are not just choking off the spaces they're in. You know, Facebook has bought virtual reality, Google's got self-driving cars, and they're having a chilling effect in both of those categories. And so my simple observation is separate in your mind antitrust from regulation. Regulation alters their behavior, antitrust alters their structure. <laughs> well, but antitrust is, is a form of regulation. I mean, there are lots of kinds. I'm, I'm suggesting it's not a helpful frame for the purpose of this conversation because antitrust is something you can get Republicans to go along with, and regulation is not. So I can tell you, you asked me how often I go to Washington, I go there every three weeks, and I can tell you I met with senior senators on the Republican side, and we can have serious conversations about antitrust, and we cannot have serious conversations about regulation. So do me a favor, let's keep the two things separate in our minds, okay? We just shouldn't use the regulation word, even if we are going to no, use regulation, but use it to describe things that look like the Consumer Bill of Rights. So then, so then am I hearing you say regulation is probably off the table, maybe there is something to be done during this administration? I'm, I'm saying that when, no, I think you can get something done if you change the House of Representatives. And the reason is because I think that there is no better issue for a Republican to run on in 2018 than opposition to Facebook. It is a dead winner in every Republican geography because you're running against a coastal, you're run by a, a you know, rich white boy. And you know, it's I think what you will see is that this that Facebook Facebook has reacted just like Microsoft did in '94, which is it decided to challenge the government at a moment in time when it had literally no cards. It was sitting there without even a pair, and the government's sitting there with a Royal flush, and I mean, they in the the battle that the Facebook can't afford to lose is the battle of user trust, and it's losing that at a geometric rate right now, and it may not be losing it in this room, but it's losing it in real life. And I did a thing at Stanford the other day; it was a stunning to me. I asked how many of you guys have deleted Facebook. No hands went up. How many have taken off your smartphone? All but two hands went up. 100% of the economics, for all intents and purposes, are on smartphones. So anybody who deletes from a smartphone might as well be deleting the whole system. And, you know, so my simple observation on this thing is these guys have grossly overstepped. And they don't have a choice. They're either going to fix this themselves or it's going to be imposed slowly on them. I really hope that's true, but just to like, play devil's advocate for a second, I suspect that most people don't understand the number of services they use that Facebook owns, for one, 
And I also suspect that a lot of the people who took it off their phone pull it up on the browser and use it anyway, so that's what I do. Right. And I think that the data is the only thing that's just so it's clear, not what Just so they're, they're not worth anything to when you pull it up on the browser, right? But it suggests that you... Explain <laughs> why. What do you mean by that? I'm just saying the way that the model works, you just work more turning the app because it's much more engaging. People spend more time on it. So, John, it's much more engaging and also because when you authenticate in the app, it's, it's the authentication sits in the operating system. And so it makes it so much easier for other apps to also pull that data and Facebook to share from that, right? So it's an ecosystem. I think that just to go back to Roger's point is that you know, all of my um, uh, distaste for what happened in Europe with Microsoft was because they were profoundly engaged in, um, in trying to figure out behavioral remedies, right? And behavioral remedies, I think, are where you know, policymakers are trying to figure out code and they're trying to figure out how to design tech. And I think that that's a recipe for, uh, you know, it stalls innovation, it's a recipe for disaster. Structural remedies like antitrust, like prohibiting the adjacent acquisitions like Instagram, right? I mean, that has chilled uh, uh, an entire area of, of innovation. Um, the, Explain how, because I don't think everyone will understand. I mean, you know, Facebook's acquisition of Instagram, there were a set of players in that in that space. And what what happens after there is a major acquisition that takes place in a particular new emerging category is that the, the, the returns to scale of the number one person means that the acquired company is the predominant player. And everybody knows, as developers, as engineers, you know, startup people, you know that space around that, the sort of shoals around particular area of technology are going to be populated by Facebook and that they're not going to let anybody else in that and in a meaningful way. And so if a company shows up and, you know, prior to the Instagram acquisition and says to me, hey, we're building a really interesting tool that plugs into Instagram, I say, okay, that's interesting. If it happens after the Facebook acquisition, I know that it's dead end as an investor. I know that that particular startup is not going to be able to they're not going to be able to get to any scale. You look what's happened with the Twitter ecosystem, same thing. Um, it is, um, uh, it, it's, it, it's, uh, yeah. So, so just uh, two questions again. Firstly, does this all mean that social is dead? And secondly, can we reinvent social to make it more acceptable? So that it's business models, that it's assaults on our privacy, uh, no longer exist. Social, in that context, is a very squiggly, Word. Like, what are we really talking about? Like, it benefits us to have connections to each other digitally that we can trust that are safe because we can do more of the things that we want and need to do. And it's, we are in a moment of reinvention where we need to figure out what that can look like. And that is different than thinking that maybe social as we know it is dead. Um, you know, I, I think a lot about. Um, what it would mean for me as a as a user to own my data, but also be able to get a lot of the benefits that I get from not owning it. Um, I don't have a solution to that, but I would I would love to hear from you guys if you think that's even possible. Even you, the moderator. So I I I believe that whenever the system gets to a really extreme point, the innovation opportunity is to do essentially just the opposite. So. My partners and I have created a thing called the 
the Center for Humane Technology. And the essential notion is that there is an enormous profit opportunity in treating people like human beings instead of like fuel. And I don't know exactly what that's going to look like, but I know that we're not very far away from 5G. And I know that the easiest time to create a software business is when there's a new hardware platform coming into the market that enables stuff that the old one didn't do. And I don't have a good handle on what 5G's going to allow yet. There is, you know, we're starting to get a sense of it. But what I know is I would design whatever fucking thing you're making to do something Facebook can't do on this thing in a humane way and then charge me for it on day one and charge me based on what I'm willing to pay. Can I just come back and I know John wants to say something. When you say treat us like human beings, what does that mean? Everyone always talks about human beings. You know, Facebook definitely does not treat people like human But what does that mean? What I'm saying is they... In what is a human being? Facebook thinks it does. Facebook, Facebook has a parasitic business model. It Roughly one-third of the people on Facebook in North America identify with at least one thing that is demonstrably untrue, whether it's climate change denial, contrails, anti-vax, flat, or take your pick. The number's up by a factor of at least four since Facebook came into the marketplace. So I would sit there and say, those people, their lives are being made worse. The whole country's life has been made worse by the outcome of the election. We have a whole series of things where Facebook has actually done harm to its users in the service of its business model. If you look at the users in Myanmar, right? Look at those users in Myanmar. Look at the users in Sri Lanka and tell me that those people are being treated like human beings. They're not. Well, I would just say that um, I, I fully hear you. I think the most disturbing thing of all of the disturbing things right now uh, for me with regard to Facebook is what's happening in these poor countries that didn't have the kind of robust institutions physically that we had and got Facebook. And Myanmar's probably top um, among my among those countries for just awful things. Um, but, Roger, Facebook, the people inside Facebook that I talk to, honestly do believe that they have created a tool that's making people's lives better. They, whether, if you want to say they drank the Kool-Aid, you can say that. It is, it is amazing to me the degree of sincerity that they had and still have for the product they have created in the way that is serving us, which is, I think, the best, uh, the best argument for smart regulation, because that's the purpose of regulation. Regulation, I think, exists in order to, to create the balance between consumers who really want a product but may not understand enough about how it's creating, and the businesses that can't trust their best instincts. And I'm not sure, I, I, don't, I don't mean this against you personally, Roger, but if you succeed at the thing that you just said you want to do, I'm not sure that in 15 years we won't be sitting on the stage talking about whatever you created. She did mean it So I think that's a completely fair criticism. So I don't know the answer. I've never pretended to. My job in this is really simple. Somebody had to run to the room with his hair on fire and say, we got a problem here. And Tristan and I started a year ago just trying to see if we could help start a conversation about what was the correct role of social media. So John, you talked about regulation. Isn't this a great opportunity to be an I mean, how many entrepreneurs are here? How many people are in startups? I mean, they've just got to come up with ideas that fix this stuff. Isn't that what entrepreneurs do? There's a market opportunity. No one wants to be watched all the time. No one wants to be, to quote Roger, treated unlike a human being. Isn't, isn't this a great opportunity for entrepreneurs? 
I think I think I think it is. Um, let me let me try and put a little bit of a framework around how I'm thinking about regulation um, versus antitrust, which I think we're all fiercely in agreement that uh, doing something constructively around sort of adjacent antitrust uh, uh, would be a good thing for the industry. Would be a good thing for growth and the economy. So the way that I think about the regulatory environment as an extension of Europe is I'm thinking about you know can we um, you know, Jesse, you said earlier, what's it mean to own your data? And the, the way I think about it is my data is my, my identity, I should have ownership over that. Right? I should have some agency over my identity. And what I mean by that is I should be able to adapt it, I should be able to fill in my profile, I should be, make that as mine, right? And I should also be able to take that away. And you I need to know where it is, right? I, I, I want to know where it is, but I want to be able to take that away. So that's sort of the right to be forgotten of the basic. Then I think about the use of my identity as I use these services. Now, my point of view is these services offer you service for free. They monetize that through advertising. You're making an implicit trade as a user with them to use their services. I think that the, the paths that you travel, your cookies, what you do, I, I think that that is data that they should have a right to. Because they're providing those services. It's like the city provides the streets. And so I just think that that is, is something it, that they, as a, as a private company, that they have a right to. Um, the friend graph is, um, and graph portability is something that I think is something we should try and figure out. And what I mean by that is I want to be able to have the ability to be able to check into my address book and see that I'm connected through Andrew, through Facebook, and through LinkedIn, or through Snapchat to unfriend him there at a single place and have it sort of go through the network. <clears throat> and I talk about my address book because it's a very simple sort of, you know, it's, a, it's an interface we all know well. But I also think Apple's starting to do some interesting things where they're going back to more of a client-server architecture where there's data, you know, namely sort of, you know, the face ID that is local to the device. And I think we need to get back to that. And then the last thing I would say... And is that because Apple has another business model rather than selling people's data. Yeah, they're not in the tension harvester, right? They're not in the harvesting business. Mm -hmm. um, harvesting is an interesting word too. Um, the, the, the last thing I would say, and this goes right back to the entrepreneurs in the room, is I think some of the most interesting things that are happening uh, are on that other end of the spectrum in the decentralized world of blockchain and crypto and where you can think about sort of decentralized identity and could that could my data in my address book, my graph, my portable graph, be you know on the blockchain or in an encrypted place that I can control? I think that is those those are the things I'm thinking about. So Jesse, this is a solution, the market solution rather than regulation, which as you say anyway isn't gonna happen in Washington DC in the next couple of years. Well blockchain will solve everything. So, um, but to be honest, in 1994, the internet would solve everything, and um, we certainly went through a hype cycle with that. And are, um, and I mean, that's ironic. So, what does solve everything? There is no solve for everything, and probably the answer is some sort of thoughtful, happy medium. I mean, I like a lot of what John is putting forward. Um, I don't know exactly what I would. Begin. I don't know exactly 
I, I think that I need something to use. You're saying something really important, which I think we need to get beyond the techno utopianism of in this particular technology, this shiny toy, blockchain, the internet will solve everything. These are tools that are not, they are not neutral as tools. And we are, as, uh, as uh, entrepreneurs, we're shaping them. And there needs to be agency and accountability for that. And I think that that is, you know, this sort of, you know, one of the things that's changed in the last year is this sort of, this, this belief that every shiny toy that an entrepreneur puts forth is inherently good. And I think that there are, uh, that needs to be, uh, that needs to be tested now. I think that's right. And I also think, you know, um, so I watched the hearings, many, many hours of the hearings on my laptop in my living room. And I talked about them with my friends, even my friends working in tech in New York. And uh, then I thought I had a sense of how people reacted to them. And then at the prompting of my editor, I called up 15 people kind of at random that I knew in Silicon Valley. And I heard an, a completely different reaction to them from people actually doing similar work in California. And that reaction was much more of the techno-utopian perspective that um, the hearings were a victory for market for Silicon Valley more broadly because it was proof that actually uh, as rough as the problems are that Facebook has created, tech is the solution for all of those problems. And folks working in tech are best positioned because they understand tech to solve those problems. And I actually think that we, as an industry, that's a blind spot that I see tech having. The blind spot is perhaps bigger in California, but it exists across tech. And that, that at least the start of this, the start of the answers to these questions comes from beginning to cross-pollinate a bit, to understand so, the Roger, I mean, you're from, you and I both from California. Uh, is, is Desi right? Is techno-utopianism still alive and well in Silicon Valley, and how do we get rid of it? Well, should we get rid of it? Einstein, and I'm going to paraphrase here, once had a great line that it's really hard to fix a problem by using the same techniques that got you into it in the first place. And, you know, Zuck's solution for addiction to Facebook is to do more Facebook. Um, you know, I think tech utopianism is really deeply ingrained in value, and it's a blind spot that causes us a lot of difficulty. It's one I think we, we you know, that is self-correcting in that if Facebook and Google are allowed to continue, and Amazon on their current trend, there won't be enough of a startup economy to matter. So, you know, because they are really choking things off. It's just a matter of time. And, you know, so to my mind, our job is to collectively get together and prevent that from happening, right? We want to stimulate competition and create opportunities for startups. Duh. I mean, that's what our economy is based on. I mean, where we are right now is not normal tech world. Normal tech world, we don't allow these things to get huge and then lock in their situation forever. I have a different view than John with the Microsoft Antitrust case. I think it really did help. And, um, and, I look at this and, you know, I have not seen an antitrust thing occur in the last hundred years that didn't leave the economy wildly better off than it found it when it started. And so I, I look at all this and my great fear is that we're in the business of services that drive after you and clean up after your dog. I mean, that's just not scalable. That's not the, that's not the thing that we were designed to, to do. 
So I'm praying for 5G to come quickly. I'm praying for other platforms. Isn't that the 5G is just another it's blockchain and something else. And what's the big deal about 5G? So everybody uses a phone. And so they're going to give you a chance to have a major upgrade cycle on one of the indispensable things in your life. So what? Well, I'm saying it just every new hardware platform creates opportunities that didn't exist before because it has capabilities nothing else had. If it doesn't have that capability, we can buy it. So, John, are you seeing a cultural shift in entrepreneurs? You, you're, you're closest to them. When they come into your office, these you know, 21, 25-year-olds, are they different today than they were 10 or 15 years ago? Do they have a sense of the failure, or are they just the same? They, that all they're thinking about is creating billion-dollar companies as quickly as possible. I, I mean, I think the shift is happening now. It doesn't happen over the last five years, but I think that in the last, you know, six, 12 months, I think that, um, you know, we, we talked about earlier, you know, uh, Roger talked about trust and the erosion of trust that Facebook uses. The other lifeblood of Facebook and these companies is the employee base. And I think that, you know, the uh, engineers at a lot of these um, large platform companies are disenchanted and, you know, they've been ardent believers that it was it was all for good. And now they're seeing the unintended or the intended consequences uh, of their business models of the you know, that the harvesting and the intention harvesting. Um, and and I think that a lot of them were scratching their head. So I think we're we're at a point of change now. Do you agree, yes? Yeah, and actually I think that that extends beyond Facebook. I think there is this sort of, you know, huge employee base, very talented people who went to, into tech to get rich. And they're, they wanted to feel good while they were getting rich. And the, the, the plus to uh, tech over Wall Street for years has been that you can go and get rich and also do something that is good and important for the world. And now across the board, I think we're all being called upon to evaluate just how good it was for the world and whether in fact it was bad for the world. And I think that you could easily see a, a whole base of employees Run for other opportunities if those opportunities exist. Who here wants to get rich first? <laughs> and who here wants to do good? And who here believes you can do both simultaneously? Wow. Well, questions. I think we have Roger, one more, and then we'll come to questions. So, our experience so far doesn't conform to either one of your statements. What we've had is a lot of meetings with people who want to show us this small change that they can design on a certain page. There hasn't been a single whistleblower from an, act, an active employee from a single one of these companies that's come forward. And this is notwithstanding Brexit, the U.S. election. Not one employee from any of these companies. But what about Tristan? Tristan Harris is uh, Roger's he, partner. He had left Google before we... Well, what makes him different from the others? Because I think he's got a conscience and a soul. The others I'm saying the others still have to demonstrate. Okay, I'm saying you you listen. It's wrong. I'm just saying during the Second World War. I think you're totally. I think you're totally like. I think you're totally giving up on a whole generation of people that we need to and should expect more of. And by the way, they do call me. They drop me notes on Signal all the time. Lots of folks inside Facebook. Okay, my question is, what are they doing about it? Okay, that, so I'm sitting there and saying... Is the only thing to do about it to start a company through your, your no, tool? No, no, no. Like the opposite. I think the only thing, the thing to do to, is come forward, let us pay their legal bills, pierce the NDA, 
and work with the Attorney General of the State of New York, Attorney General of the State of California, Attorney General of the State of Massachusetts, and let's get this problem fixed. How many Facebook people are here? No. <laughs> okay, well, let's, we, we've talked for 45 minutes. We've got about 15 minutes of questions. So try and, I'm sure there'll be lots of questions and comments. Please be as abrasive and critical as you can be, particularly to, particularly to Roger. <laughs> hey, Roger. I'm, I'm Theo, and I'm 16. I have read a novel. Uh, but you said, I don't know if there's a solution to this, and maybe, maybe there is one. I have a couple, and I don't know if it's because I'm young and I'm part of that next generation of entrepreneurs, but I think there are two paths that that could definitely lead to solving <clears throat> this problem. And it might, and by this problem, I mean the whole trust and, and owning your own data. And and I think and I think there's a huge swath of users of Facebook that are part of the older generations. I think the next generation of users, mine, know how to deal with it a little bit more. So it might be a realization in the coming 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, maybe the people who are already on it are lost. So let me make a slight clarification so you understand where it's coming from. I believe there are literally a million different technical solutions to the problem. I think the biggest problem you face is that Facebook and Google block your access to users. And so the hardest part is to get to critical mass. That's why a new generation of hardware would be helpful, because it would break that down. Oh, I completely agree. How, does that, work? How does that work? Google and Facebook are actively blocking? What is that well, mean? no, I mean, you know, Facebook's got the VPNs leaking track of what everybody's doing, and Google can see what everybody's doing, and they... Facebook also blocks you from exporting this front graph. There you go. So, so uh, please do it. Make it happen. Okay? I hope each one of you has a part of the solution. All I'm saying is, the reason I'm concerned about it is I don't think it's enough to have a great idea and be a great entrepreneur. Right now, the system has some things that are biased against us collectively, and we don't have a governmental structure capable of handling it, and we don't even have a consensus on what the problem is. And so those are, I mean, those are problems that can be bridged, and hopefully by you and, and other folks. More questions, I'm sure lots of people. Try and keep them brief. Middle. Go ahead with mine. You have the mic so you can speak. I'll ask a real quick one. Uh, the, uh, we've talked about trust, but I was curious what you think about the idea of knowledge and to the extent that when we're talking about these future platforms or these future technologies, how we want to think about this design of epistemology and this separation of opinion and knowledge, if that's important, if that's something that societies have always dealt with and they figured it out on their own, or if what you've said is that we've kind of blurred that world and it's not as important. You know, truth and knowledge are two different things. Is there a distinction? It's a great question, and I just want to pick on someone in the audience who's a friend of mine. Martin Niesenholz was the original, well, you were the, the original designer of the New York Times online, your digital pioneer, veteran, legend. Do you want to add to that about this problem of uh, distinguishing truth and opinion? Not, of course, that everything that the New York Times publishes is true. <laughs> no, it is true. Um, the, the, I guess I, I, have, I have a question, actually, if you wouldn't go on. Do you guys favor regulation or not? I, I mean, we That's a good question. Get them on this. Yes. 
Yes. Yes, I said yes. Yeah. <laughs> well, Marty, why do you ask that? You, you think they were sort of shying away from the question? Well, it's not. It, I, I, th I think it is complex, as you've all acknowledged, and it's just hard for me to understand specifically what kind of regulation. It's the what kind it, part, right? Like people, yeah. people ask me all yeah, the time. So, so if you were, if, if if you were writing a bill, if you were in Congress, what would the what would the legislation look like? What would you regulate? Great question. I, I suspect I may be the most conservative on the panel on this front, but I would follow Europe's lead. You would follow Europe's So you yeah. would be a GDPR-like <laughs> structure. Okay, I would do the same, but I would add to it, I would require a fiduciary rule for all people who hold private consumer data. So like doctors, like lawyers, they would be required to be custodians, and they would be required to put the interest of the user first. And that would shift all the liability onto the platforms including for the data that they've allowed to leak in the past. John? So I, I would add to that the graph portability that I talked about, which I think is really important. And then I think that we will so agree to uh, you know, some degree of antitrust or just uh, you know, acquisition of adjacent companies by these platforms. Let's go back to the Let's address the question in a regulatory sense. So, I think everyone will agree that one of the... Can I just on the merits? Because the question you raised, that this issue of fact, I don't like to use the word truth because truth has a moral component to it, but if you use fact as opposed to disinformation, the problem we have is we talk about fake news and we don't separate fake news from disinformation. Disinformation is things that are not true and Fake news is something that I choose not to believe that may be true, may not be true, but it does not conform to my belief. Let, let, me, let me just, I want to stick to this. Can, can this, I mean, we all agree that there is, I mean, quoting the question of an epistemological crisis about distinguishing whatever it is, fake news, propaganda, trollery from facts. Can that be regulated, John? Should these platforms be treated like media companies? Should they be fined as they are in Germany? for allowing for the publication of lies? I think that, um, so at, at the hearing, there was a huge shift on this, right? So Zuckerberg, as, as I always said, we're different, we're not, we're not bad. And I think that there's, uh, I, I heard him embrace regulation. I was concerned that he was embracing regulation because he's basically acknowledging that he's a monopolist at this point. And that he views it as a uh, a way to entrench his service uh, in sort of every aspect of our behavior because he knows that the, the other party would love access to all the data is the government, and so I worry about that. But um, what's the question again? But to me, the problem is the no. But the question is, can you? Should we be thinking about regulating the digital marketplace, digital media? So that the, the gentleman's question was that so that what we read on the internet has an element of truth about it rather than just fiction and propaganda, or is that an? But, but the the, pro the problem with this whole thing is that the systems, in order to maximize engagement to monopolize your attention, are structured in such a way that gives roughly a ten to one advantage to disinformation over fact, and that's an architectural thing and. To me, the really interesting question is, can you make a compelling product based on that? I would, I, would, I would want to add to it, and I would say that we have, we have a wonderful repository of knowledge that we are drawing from all the time, that we have collectively put together, 
and that we need to be very careful right now to support enough to kill and should be treating more like a utility than we are. And that is Wikipedia. And Wikipedia is a is this nonprofit that is mostly sustained by the ten dollars you throw at it every once in a while when you feel guilty, kind of like the radio. And, and all of the big platforms are now leaning on it as their solution, often without killing it first. And that is putting that beautiful resource under a lot of pressure. And we really need to be paying attention right now to how we shore it up. But that's a good problem in that we're acknowledging that there is a resource of some degree of truth rather than just bias. And that crowdsourcing can work. Get rid of the word truth. I would say collective yeah. knowledge. Knowledge that we... John, a media startups, is there still an opportunity for aspiring Salzburgers here to start something that is true and that can sell around truth? I, yes, there is. I, I do think that the... Say more about the, that. What the, does it mean? Well, the distinction, the distinction you've got to draw is, is that you know, Google, Google solved the discovery problem on the internet of being able to find things. But Google did not monetize the underlying pages which you found. Right, that is now changing. Google is starting to do that. They say service more and more in their answers page, so you don't leave that answer page. But that architecture you know, was one that actually promoted, I think, a uh, the framework of PageRank actually promoted a structure that things which were more people thought were relevant or true to a particular rose to the top. I think the architecture that Facebook has uh, developed, which is entirely constructed around engagement, which then in turn you know, biases naturally towards you know, how salacious, it's basically the tabloid model for a feed, where you're, you're measuring engagement as the core metric. I think that, that sort of the very architecture they put in place is it, it, it's going to result in what we have today. And that's right, it's point as well. It's giving way too much credit to Google. Um, how is it giving credit to Google? Because he's saying that, I mean, just look at YouTube. YouTube's, I mean, as Guillaume Shallow said the other day on, on NBC when he was doing the algorithms of Google, that, I mean, the conspiracy theories are the thing to try there. They're, they're but isn't, it, well, isn't that what you just said? No, I thought you said that Google is better than Facebook. I think that Google has Google's search engine has historically been better than Facebook. I'm just saying anything that's based on a voting popularity thing is going to suffer in a day and age when a third of the population right. identifies with demonstrably untrue. And, and if the monetization happens on that paid surface, right, because the separation of monetization from discovery that architecture actually drove something that I think surfaced, you know, a lot of truth. And, but now it's being completely obfuscated. And this is uh, more questions, I know there were some at the back. Try and ask a question about AI. Can we get a woman to ask a question? Yeah. A woman to ask. Are there any women here? <laughs> I, as a former Googler, I have to say, I think you're being entirely unfair to probably um, because they've been a fantastic steward of the data, but that isn't my question. Um, my question is around policy and how the U.S. government um, can regulate an industry that they clearly don't understand. And so how, how do we do that from our democracy, and will any of you run for office? <laughs> I, I, I want to hear what Roger has to say on this, because I was going to ask you this question. I think that and what I observed with the Microsoft case is that the European regulators and the American regulators 
finally took time that they understood technology. And when Lindsey Graham, you know, made some analogies to, well, if Facebook was a car company, and I heard, you know, some people, some of you interviewed, dismiss that and say these guys in Washington have no fucking idea. I think when car companies were just getting going, they were actually complex systems, yeah. and it seemed like amazing the car companies could do all these things. If this is not that hard, it just takes time. And, but I think that part of the techno-utopianism is only we can do this and only we can solve this, which I think is actually... And, and there are only technology solutions to technology problems. Right. Yeah. I, I, have, I will just say that I have wished, as I've watched these hearings, that I could go back to 2008, 2009, and watch the, um, the hearings for the mortgage-backed securities folks and see if um, the, the people we have elected to office were smarter about other industries, really. So so what? What's your quote? So so. So you're just saying everyone's ignorant. I'm saying I'm saying that we've never we've never expected it to be a qualification of an elected official that they understand an industry deeply enough to be able to be an oh, actor in that industry. And Robert, let me ask you: you spent a lot of time in DC. Do these people? I'm maybe it's not that hard to understand. I can understand. Well, but then they're investing in it now. There are two senators now who have data scientists on their staff. And they're now data scientists on, uh, you know, committee staffs. Uh, the New York Attorney General's office has a ton of data scientists. They really understand what they're doing here. So my preference is to focus on the Internet Bill of Rights, focus on the fiduciary rule as the starting places, because those are things you don't need to know anything about the industry. Those mm -hmm. are just good housekeeping rules. And you know, after that, we can talk about it. Uh, again, I'd like to limit the scale. Of these companies, because again, I think antitrust law would, you know, I think Google would be so much better off if it spun off YouTube because YouTube has this unique set of problems that would be that YouTube doesn't have an incentive to solve as part of Alphabet. Mm. And, you know, YouTube can be a great product and they just need the right incentive. So I think the incentives are in the wrong places right now, and I'd love to change that by some restructuring. Final question, and then I want to this idea at the front. Hi, Aaron. Um, Kelly, no, 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 sorry. Oh, sorry. Oh, sorry. Just quickly, as we start to use voice as our point of interface with things, John, maybe you would be best to answer this. Do you think Facebook will disappear? And, let's, uh, and then you ask your question, Calvin, and then we'll wrap up. Because we're done in Do you want me to answer? Ask him how we answer? Yeah, go on. Well, uh, what I want to know about is, like, I'm a little concerned. I'm surprised that you all are so eager to regulate this thing. Because when I look at it, like, what happened with Microsoft and the antitrust, the market kind of took care of it. it, it and now browsers are bundled into operating systems. In my book. And GDPR, <laughs> I have the yeah, I'm sorry. GDPR, I've, I'm a small company. I have a thousand customers that are all small, small companies. And everybody's panicking and having to waste time on this. And it seems like just as this regulation is kicking in, which is super bureaucratic and complicated, the, mar the market's kind of taking care of it because everybody's, uh, like, people are starting to realize what Facebook is doing. It doesn't seem to me that it's obvious that really, really regulation is the answer, but you all seem to... Brave question. So you can, one of you can, have, John, do you want to answer the latest question about... Sure, I'll start up, so starting the voice. So there, there are new interfaces, right? And so we um, have done a whole bunch of work in the last couple of years at voice, and voice is clearly, you know, your ability to speak to 
uh, a device, whether it's an Alexa device, or whether it's a Google Home device, or whether it's a Siri device. Um, note that every one of those devices I just listed are made by the major platforms, with the exception of the Facebook listing device, which I don't think we have yet, but could easily show up on the market. And so I think that when you see you know, the, the innovation that's happened in that space, a lot of it is from the big platforms, and it speaks to, I think, exactly the points that I've tried to make, Roger's made here about just innovation cycles, right? There was a, uh, there was a company that um, was basically, um, you know, uh, there's been a couple of companies that Amazon has just taken their technology, uh, you know, done diligence on the company sensibly for an investment or an acquisition and taken their technology and then integrated into their own uh, without acquiring the company. And we've seen that kind of sort of, you know, platforms at this point, I think, are dominating the world of voice and this new interface, the major platforms. So it's, it is, it, it's, there are nooks and crannies in there for startups, but you've really got to search for them. And I think that it, it represents a whole new interface that could uh, change the way we uh, use computing and we interact with computing, but I think that right now, it's being shoehorned into the existing products, right? So some great data the other day. Average uh, Alexa user spends three times the amount on Amazon than a uh, than a non uh, Alexa user. I think is the, uh, the metric. So one of the intriguing things about this conversation is no one has mentioned Amazon, which is the largest company of all, and some people would argue the biggest threat to trust. Do did either of you have a question on uh, a response on the the voice stuff? before you um, address the, the, the gentleman's last question. Only that it doesn't occur to you that we, that Amazon really got off easy in the last hour. <laughs> 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 Roger, anything on boards? I just, this is my point about why new platforms matter so much, because these guys are controlling every new thing that comes out, and that's, constra as John said, it constrains the innovation to the areas that serve their immediate needs, as opposed to the biggest options that are out there. I mean, you can go out and be able to start a new voice-based system. It's going to be really hard, right, to go up against those three. So, and, and final response to the, this remark, which you often hear that regulation is just tying everyone up and is a complete waste of time. It's the, it's the problem rather than the solution. Very brief responses to that. I mean, we've addressed this issue broadly, I think, in this panel. I mean, I... I still stand by regulation. I don't think, I think that the market is better served by um, regulation than by waiting for the market to maybe take care of things. Roger responds to the gentleman. So I, I think it would be really useful to spend time and think about where the threshold should kick in. We do not, the problem with the danger with certain kinds of regulation, I think GDPR is an example of this, is that they lock in the advantages of incumbency. And I would like to find, that's why I want to marry it with something that puts a fence and maybe breaks off pieces, uh, because otherwise all you're doing is locking out startups, and that's the opposite of what I want to do. But I think we have to accept that self-regulation has failed really profoundly here. We're not used to technology products having an effect on elections across the world. We're not used to them contributing to you know, the mistreatment of religious minorities. And so uh, we've got to do something. And I think we've got to be serious about regulation because maybe if we are serious enough about regulation, we can enforce some behavioral changes. John, John, John if you look at Facebook right now, they're 
know, it's move fast, break things, apologize, move forward as though nothing has happened. Great more things. John, any response to that general remark? So just just building on and uh, Jesse and Roger went with this is that I think you know it's important to to look at the time we're at right now because over the last like, ten years these platforms have gone and gathered so much data and the um, the dividends of all of that acquisition of data or harvesting of data that we've talked about here are now going to be we're going to see the results in machine learning and AI. And I think that in the next five years, as technology sort of encroaches upon, embeds itself in hopefully mostly a good way into every corner of our lives, all of that data and all of that um, machine learning is going to be framed under the environment that we create in the next couple of years. Because I think that if it remains exclusively the realm of the uh, major platforms, I think that you know, the cycle of you know, apologize and then continue exactly what we'll see. So let's end, I just want to go along the line. One piece of regulation that is doable, that if you could snap your fingers, you'd implement, you'd legislate. Roger? I would do the fiduciary rule. Just very briefly, what does that mean? Again, they they have to treat, like a doctor, like a lawyer, if the user goes to the top of the pyramid, and so you have to, you have a legal uh, moral, ethical, and financial responsibility for protecting. So it's like doctors, it's like the Hippocratic it, Well, it's actually like the fiduciary role of doctors, the fiduciary role of lawyers, the fiduciary role of investors. You have to put the client first. Jess? Um, I'll go with that affordability. I think everybody should be able to own and take it out of work. So a GDPR style? No, that's Stepping on it. Which an amendment of what I said earlier, I was swayed by John's argument. So she's going for graph ability. So I'll do antitrust then. Basically, so thank you, Andrew. Any closing comments? No, they're all in my book. Yeah. So Andrew's book about how to fix the future is up front. Um, thank you all for attending. Uh, if you're interested in what we're building here at Studios, please talk to people up front, or there'll be something on the screen here. Thank you, and um, it's nice to be here. Thanks for listening to the NYC Media Lab podcast. This episode has featured Betaworks CEO John Borthwick in discussion with author Andrew Keen, Wired journalist Jesse Hempel, and early Facebook investor Roger McNamee on the subject of why regulation is the only way to protect innovation in Silicon Valley. I hope you'll continue the discussion online. Tag us on Twitter at NYC Media Lab. Thanks for listening.